This is the current federal tax developments for the week of January the 23rd, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at what's happened here as we head toward the end of January. We have one more of these to do for January. We're coming into that range and taking a look at what's happened and what's coming up here in the area of federal taxes. This week, the IRS uh, had to deal with a new set of storms, this time in Georgia and Alabama. And the IRS has provided, as they did with the California storms we talked about earlier, discussed how they have provided extended due dates for these storms. And it's effectively the same relief we saw in California, except for the fact these storms arrived a few days later. So the beginning dates a few days later for this coverage, but otherwise it's essentially the same relief we got before. We also have a story where the IRS, uh, an IRS individual or executive speaking to the California Society of Enrolled Agents in a virtual conference made the statement that the IRS has now achieved the goal of being able to respond to practitioner priority line calls, apparently on an average of 10 minutes. And we'll discuss what that means, what it means going forward, and you know what the impacts might be. But certainly I will say I've had online groups where I've heard more than a few comments now that people are seeing lines, you know, calls get through. And it's just been the past couple of weeks, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about that when we get there. We're also going to look at a court case this week for a taxpayer who tried to do his own research on a tax item on the web, uh, misunderstood what an article was talking about, and unfortunately tried to exclude from his income a distribution he received from a 401k plan because he had been diagnosed with diabetes two years earlier. And uh, then he lost his job, apparently for unrelated reasons. But unfortunately, it didn't turn out well for the taxpayer. And finally, the IRS has released the new auto depreciation limits for 2023 under Section 280 Cap F, as well as the lease inclusion tables. And we'll discuss that. So let's turn first to IRS News Release 2023-09, issued on January 19th, that's entitled IRS Georgia and Georgia Alabama Storm Victims Qualify for Tax Relief, April 18th Deadline and Other Dates Extended to May 15th. And this is very, very similar to the relief that we saw come down regarding the California storms we discussed a couple weeks ago. This extends due dates that occur after January 12th of 2023 to May 15th of 2023. Now, obviously, not many things were due on the 12th, but January 15th, yeah, there's going to be some tax return filing due dates for fiscal year entities. Also, you'll discover that the first, you know, basically the last estimate for 2022 was due on that date. We'll discover that's also been pushed forward to May 15th. It should cover as well, obviously, the 1040s, uh, calendar year returns. It will cover that, so you'll get that extended due date. Instead of April 15th being the date you must file by, or April 18th, it will now be May 15th. Uh, so those are coming in. Now, this is only for those that reside in or have their books and records located in the counties that are listed on the IRS's website, which is effectively a list of counties that have been declared disaster areas related to these storms. As the IRS notes, these lists sometimes grow. They get expanded for various reasons. So you probably want to keep checking if your client is not in one affected county, but it's close by, 
you might check to see if that expands to cover your client. Again, this will be it. There shouldn't be anything taxpayers have to do in this case if their address is in those counties. However, if their address is not in those counties, then you may have to contact the IRS to get relief. Let's say your, your mailing address is outside the area, but your books and records are located inside the area. That'd be one where you might have to contact the service to get relief. As well, there is another set of rules that always comes up on this. Uh, payroll tax deposits do not get, do not get basically uh, deferred for the entire period. My guess is from the IRS's perspective, probably correctly, that if you, if you told people not to pay payroll tax deposits all the way from January 12th through May 15th, there would be some small businesses that would never be able to make that huge deposit that would suddenly have been deferred. So now they just say payroll tax deposits, those that were due beginning on the 12th of January, as long as they are made by January the 27th for a taxpayer in the affected areas, that you will be considered to have timely made your payroll tax deposits. So that comes into play. As I noted, be sure you do check back on the website. The IRS, whenever we have these disaster declarations, the IRS does keep updating the list of counties if it changes. So be sure you're there to find out if there is additional counties that will be covered by this program. Next up, we're gonna talk about an article that was in Tax Notes today on the 19th. This was written by Kristen Perillo, and it is wait times falling for the practitioner helpline. And Kristen was reporting on a virtual event run by the California Society of Enrolled Agents. And at this virtual conference, Ken Corbin, the IRS's taxpayer experience officer and wage and investment division commissioner, was talking about what's been happening with, you know, practitioners have had eight, let's face it, nearly impossible time getting through to the IRS to resolve various tax matters for clients. It's been virtually impossible to get through and get those things done on the phone. You traditionally got, you know, you just get a busy, you know, you just get dropped. You'd be told, nope, you know, we can't take any more calls today. You'd be dropped on the line. You would have a courtesy disconnect after two hours. In essence, it was becomes very, very difficult unless you just lucked into it to be able to get through to the service. And that in particular was true of the practitioner priority line. Now, it's been pretty clear, and the taxpayer advocate made it clear as well, that what happened was, and she even said somewhat with her belief that you had to do it, that the IRS turned around and said, we gotta get, every, you know, we gotta get all these paper returns, this backlog taken care of. We can't enter the next tax season hugely far behind on processing the prior returns. We need to get this done. So the IRS had diverted a lot of employees uh, to uh, handling basically tax processing. Well, recently it's been reported they're more up to speed there. It's not yet perfect, but it's better than it was. And what's happened is the IRS has been able to transition employees back to the lines. They're stating that 12,000 employees have now been essentially moved back to handling phone calls. And because of that, uh, Mr. Corbin reported that the IRS was now answering practitioner priority calls in 10 minutes. He gave most of the credit to the 12,000 plus, of course, the 5,000 employees the IRS went and was able to hire that were going to be adding to phone support. But he also said he did give some credit to the program dealing with the robocall system. He 
didn't indicate really how much of it was that or any significance, but he was asked about it on the call. You know, did the robocall work you've done make any difference in getting this down to 10 minutes? And he said, he said, well, they, they've updated, they've changed it, they had to revise it because, of course, the robocalling systems got smarter on dealing with it. But he did give the indication, at least part of the reason why the calls are going through faster now is because the robocalls have been at least somewhat uh, curtailed. Now, that said, I've, I've got to assume that this probably won't be good news if we actually keep the 10-minute range for those on the robocall systems. I should also note that the other thing we're seeing now is that while many people, and I've been on various forums to talk about this, and I even post when I posted the article and I put on Twitter that, you know, this was what was being stated in the article. I did get some people posting saying, nope, it's not there yet. I have problems. It's not working. Um, but I did get quite a few and more that effectively said, oh, no, I, I got through in two minutes. I got through in three minutes, whatever. And the other big thing I heard quite often, though, was I got through, but they still have a problem with dropped calls. You know, when they try to transfer you or put you on hold, your car ends up, your call ends up getting disconnected. And I will say that in the article, uh, you know, Ms. Perillo uh, did note that Mr. Corbin had stated that that is a problem the IRS is aware of, that their phone system has a knack of just dropping people out of the blue. Um, and they're working on that. So that's still an issue and a problem that you may find that you're going to get dropped again. And I guess the only good news is you got a reasonable chance of getting back in, but then you obviously, whenever that happens, you're starting from scratch again with it. Also, Mr. Corbin noted something that you may, uh, you may find useful. Previously and prior to the pandemic, if you call in the practitioner priority line, there was a limit of five clients that you could work with, five accounts you could deal with in one call. He said that at least for now, they have removed that five uh basically five account limit has been removed and they'll let you talk about more than five accounts. Now, the article didn't say if that means unlimited or we're just going to let you go a bit farther than five, but he did indicate that the hard and fast five rule is not is now gone. So you should be able to you know get at least a little bit more done at this point. Now, how does all of this survive into the coming tax season? Well, that's clearly a big question. I think one thing that obviously is impacting this, I would expect, I don't think a lot of practitioners are yet aware that they're actually answering the calls now in a reasonable time frame. And I suspect that that may mean a lot of practitioners who have gone or resorted to other methods to deal with the IRS currently uh, may just simply have not tried calling practitioner priority line recently. And if they haven't called PPL recently, then yeah, you know, it'll be easier to get through. So it'll be interesting as word gets out that they're able to answer the phones if we then start running into problems again. The other problem is obviously we're going to be coming to tax season. And when tax season comes, that will also put a lot more pressure on these lines, that the tax season is going to be involved with that. So with a lot more pressure on these lines, you know, are they still going to be able to maintain a 10-minute wait? But that said, uh, even if you went to six times that amount, you're probably still with an hour be way better than what we saw during the most the past two years. So 
I'm guessing it will still be substantially improved. It may not be perfect, but we'll, we'll hope for the best for the upcoming season. So if you haven't tried calling Practitioner Priority Line recently, you might try it again. It may not be quite as much a, you know, it's never going to work situation as you may have thought of before. Next up, we have our tax court case this week, the tax court memo case, uh, 2023-9, came out on January the 17th. This is the case of Lucas versus Commissioner. The question here involves a taxpayer who received a distribution from a 401k plan. Now, this taxpayer had been diagnosed with diabetes in 2015. Now, with that diagnosis, it didn't change his work. He kept working at the job and kept going. And so he was able to work during that time frame. In 2017, apparently unrelated to the diabetes, uh, he lost his job. And at that time, because financially there were things he needed to get done, he, need, you know, he had financial pressure, not surprisingly, he took a distribution from the 401k plan. Now, the problem, of course, is that you take a distribution of the plan, you end up having to pay tax on that, which you know, means that you normally have to take somewhat more than your distribution. And because in this case, Mr. Lucas had not attained age 59 and a half, uh, he was also going to be hit with a 10% early distribution penalty for the amounts come out of that account. Now, Mr. Lucas apparently, you know, decided to do his, was doing his return on his own, and he had read an article on the internet that he interpreted to mean that if he was disabled and the, di the diabetes qualified as a disability that would trigger this, and if he was disabled, that he didn't have to pay tax on the distribution from the retirement plan. There were a couple of problems with what he did in this case. Um, one of the biggest problems was that he misunderstood what the article was talking about. The judge notes this particular article was not talking about whether you pay tax on it, but whether you had to pay the extra 10% early distribution tax if you had not attained age 59 and a half, and it walked through and was talking about the disability exclusion. The other problem the court noted was that even if the article said it was excludable, and even if he had been, and even if he had been reading it and then what was misinterpreting the article, he followed it exactly. The article is not what's going to be binding in the courts. The courts are looking to the underlying law. And under the underlying law, uh, essentially, these distributions are taxable. There is no such uh, disability exception for the regular income tax. So he had to include that entire amount in his income. That one's not surprising. But the court did note that there is a disability exclusion for the 10% early, uh, or early basically distribution penalty, or distribution tax, get the right total in there. It's not technically a penalty. Uh, but in order to do that, you have to show that you are disabled. Interestingly enough, the Treasury regulations do indicate that diabetes is one of those things that would lead quite often to a disability condition that would qualify for this exception. So, hey, that sounds like good news. But the court noted that the rate goes on to say, though, even though that's a condition of a type that could qualify, you still have to look at the specific condition for the taxpayer in question. And the underlying real test is, is the taxpayer able to engage in substantial gainful activity? And that generally means being able to work and be paid for it. 
Now, this is not the super tight definition that you might see for something like social security disability, where we look at whether he could do anything, but rather we look for something that's in line with his training and background. And this gentleman was an engineer. And so the question became, was his disability of a sort that he would be unable to do work of the type that he had been trained to do? Was it just simply not really feasible for him to be paid for doing that work, that no, he would be unable to be hired because of that disability, because that would render him unable to perform that work. And the court said there was no evidence submitted that he could not perform substantial gainful activity. In essence, the court pointed out, look, bottom line, he was diagnosed two years earlier. He continued to successfully work on the job up until the date he lost his job. So it wasn't as if he was unable or the diabetes meant that he couldn't do the job. And he had no direct evidence, which might have helped him if he could have shown that there was some substantial difference now, something was different now than it had been in the past. And based on that change that occurred in 2017, that's what made him unable to continue to work if that was the trigger, but he couldn't show that. So the bad news is in this case, the taxpayer lost on all counts. Now let's go back and talk about that reading the article. And I realize there, there's probably a tendency by a lot of professionals to go, well, that, that's a problem. You know, you're, you're not a tax professional. This re, you know, do your own research system for areas you have no background in is doomed to fail would be the thing some people might say. But let's talk about where things stand because practitioners also do pay attention to things that are not just the items that you have that would stand up in court for proof. You know, you many of you are probably using things like the Quick Finder Guide, the Tax Handbook, those sorts of things, or even the Master Tax Guide or the Federal Tax Handbook from RIA. Those also tend to just tell us an answer without a whole lot of discussion and background to explain why this position is what it is. Some are better than others, like the Federal Tax Handbook, where the Master Tax Guide will refer you back to the Tax Research Service in detail, which would have a longer discussion and refer you back to more primary materials that you could use to prove it up. But let's talk about some of the ways we get in trouble with using this third-party material. First thing is, do I believe you should use it? Well, yeah because I, I do that. I'm known to go and check the internet, right? And do, do a quick run, you know, to see if like there's an article on something unusual somebody's asking about tax-wise that I don't really, you know, off the top of my head know how the answer goes if he wants to verify something. I'll go and check those sorts of things. Now, do I just blindly follow the first article I see? No. I understand that any article that I have I need to know a few things about it. I want to take a look at who the author is, right? Where is it coming from? I also like to check to see if the article is going to really give me citations to what they're relying upon for their answers, or is it just simply going to tell me the answer is X and trust me on it. Trust me articles aren't really worth a lot. You know, I'm not going to pay attention to a trust me article because, you know, except maybe to help me confirm after I find the actual supporting documents. Okay, well, at least I think he's reading, he or she's reading it the same way I am. But otherwise, don't worry much about that. I do love articles that give me the footnotes and tell me where they got stuff because then I go back and double check. The other problem I find people have when they read these sort of editorial materials 
on tax items that are attempting to simplify things down is it's very, very dangerous when doing that stuff to attempt to use that and then expand it beyond what it says. But I've seen people do that all the time. Well, I, the article doesn't really say, let's say, that it covers X, which is my client's position, but it covers Y, and Y is kind of like X. So if Y is this way, then my client, should, yeah, interpreting, never, ever, ever interpret interpretive documents, right? In essence, somebody's already taken the law and tried to interpret it, but the law is all you can interpret and have it stand up. You can't really sit back there and try to interpret an interpretation. Also be very leery, and this is a huge problem, of what I think causes the most errors in tax research, which is the concept of confirmation bias. Now, you probably have heard this in a number of contexts. I'm talking about in the tax context. Be very careful of forming your answer first and then going to find backup for it. Because if you do it that way, you'll probably find backup for it. The problem is you will blind yourself to contrary authorities that are clearly superior to what you're relying upon. You know, I always say the best way to do research and protect your clients 100% is to start out interpreting everything, trying to find, trying to prove the opposite, or even better. When you're reading a document, you're reading something, don't ask yourself, can my client get, you know, can, can I read this to say my client goes through this, right? Read it a little differently. Read it to say, you know, okay, let me see. Not, not necessarily can I accept it. So I'm just going, is there any way, you know, I'm only, going to I'm only going to say this doesn't support my answer if there's no way, you know, my answer, you know, there, there's no way it could be right. My answer could, could fit with, or let's say the contrary answer could fit within this particular source I've just read. My source says flat out, no, you can't deduct, you can't get a, you know, a exclusion from income for diabetes related distributions from a 401k plan. You're not likely to find anything saying that directly. But rather, you know, take a look at asking if you think it's, you know, if you're thinking it's in your favor, you know, don't, don't ask yourself that. J just say, must it result in my answer? And if the answer is not that it must, then we're looking for something better that tells us we are there or at least get enough in there to know that we're going to have it totally unclear. Too often we come up with our answer and then we tell the client, oh, it's clear that this qualifies. This is going to work after working from a number of sources, none of which required that answer to be true. Maybe they didn't say it wasn't, but that's not the same as saying your answer is right. As well, when you get authority that appears to totally contradict the answer you want, don't spend all your time picking at it to see if there's any way, any way you could pull it out. But rather, you know, be very careful to say, you know, when you're evaluating that, not, not does this require I reject it, but could somebody reasonably who was, let's say your client wanted the opposite answer, could it be used by them in a way to say, oh yeah, it supports my position. And I think that's the better way to look at this sort of thing. Okay, finally, let's talk about the other thing we had this week. Revenue Procedure 2023-14, the IRS has released the new depreciation limits for 2023 under 280F. Now, Table 1 of those limits 
uh, tells us the depreciation amounts that are involved if you're claiming bonus depreciation. So for automobiles placed in service in calendar year 2023, and it's those acquired after September 27, 2017, just in case you have a car that's been sitting around since before then, and you're just now putting it in service because if it's before then, then it's under a different set of rules. So we won't worry about that. Assuming you're not finally putting in service a car you've held for years, uh, the maximum first year deduction for depreciation is 20,200 for that car placed in service in 23 uh, with bonus depreciation. The second year is 19,500. The third year is 11,700. And each succeeding year is 6,960. Now, if you don't qualify for bonus depreciation, we essentially just reduce the first year by 8,000. So instead of 20,200, we turn around and we set this up for 12,200. That's our maximum and that's what we can do. Now the revenue procedure also provides, so that, that's, that's the table two limits, I should say. We don't use bonus. It also provides for you the lease inclusion tables. As you're aware, because 280F limits depreciation, if we lease the car instead of buying it, instead of using the, you know, because we're not going to limit depreciation, assuming we're treating it as a true lease and not a, a conditional sales, additional set, conditional sales contract, a, a, assuming that that's what we're doing, then basically in that scenario, uh, you have to add back what's called the lease inclusion amount, put that back in to reduce your deduction. That table is in there for cars placed in service this year or for these deemed le for the lease renewals. If you have a renewal in that case for the lease inclusion amount. So that that's also in the mix. Again, these are released every year. This came out last year, it delayed a while. This year it came out relatively early. So we have it now. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments for this week. I am getting into the really heavy period of CPE just before CPE stops. That tends to happen this time of year. So this week, I have quite a few sessions I'm doing, uh, various locations, uh, you know, for various groups, talking to groups, talking to firms, talking to all kinds of things at this point. So we got things like that and have a couple more of those coming up. Uh, we will be closing that out here shortly. And I expect unless we see something like we saw last year with the K2, K3 that suddenly burst on the scene, which is about this time last year, um, probably I will be uh, doing my last webinars, uh, except for some very simple monthly tax updates, uh, you know, until we get past tax season here shortly. So interesting, another CPE season down uh, or shortly to be down. So we'll take a look at that and go from there. Uh, otherwise, be sure to check in here next week. Uh, I will be hanging around here probably, I would assume, looking to see what we do with updates. It's becoming a little fun with the time constraints now, but we're still hopefully going to be getting things together as we go. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. I also do check the Connect sites on state societies. So Arizona Society, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Minnesota, Washington, as well as checking the discussion board on the Idaho Society. So if you have anything you want to, you can post there. Otherwise, we'll see you guys back here next week. Uh, we look to see if the IRS comes up with anything else new coming out during the week. And if not, we'll see what we can talk about here on current federal tax developments.